Section 1 of The Red Lamp. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Zach Hoyt. The Red Lamp by Murray Roberts Reinhardt. Introduction to the Journal of William A. Porter, A. B., M. A., Ph.D., Lit. D., etc. June 30th, 1924. A few weeks ago at a dinner, a discussion arose as to the unfinished dramas recorded in the daily press. The argument was, if I remember correctly, that they give us the beginning of many stories, and the ending of as many more, but that what followed those beginnings, or preceded those endings, was seldom or never told. It was Pettingill, of all persons, who turned the attention of the table to me. "'Take that curious case of yours, Porter,' he said. "'Not yours, of course, but near your summer place two years ago. Whatever happened there?' Grace and I used to sit up all night to see who would get the morning paper first, then it quit on us, that's all, quit on us. He surveyed the table with an aggrieved air. Helena Lear glanced across at me maliciously. Do tell us, Willie, she said. She is the only person in the world who calls me Willie, and give us all the horrible details. You know, I have always had a sneaking belief that you did the things yourself. Under cover of the laugh that went up, I glanced at my wife. She was sitting erect and unsmiling, her face drained of all its color, staring across the flowers and candles into the semi-darkness above the buffet, as though she saw something. I do not know, I never shall know, probably. I saw little Pettingill watching her unobtrusively, and following her eyes to the space over the buffet behind me, but I did not turn around. Possibly it was only the memories aroused by that frivolous conversation which made me feel, for a moment, that there was a cold wind eddying behind my back. It occurred to me then that many people throughout the country had been intensely interested in our Oakville drama and had been left with that same irritating sense of non-completion. But not only that, at least three of the women had heard me make that absurd statement of mine relative to the circle enclosing a triangle. There were more than Helen Lear, undoubtedly, who had remembered it when, early in July, the newspapers had announced the finding of that diabolical symbol along with the bodies of the slain sheep. It seemed to me that it might be a duty I owed to myself as well as to the university, to clarify the matter, to complete the incomplete, to present to them the entire story with its amazing climax, and in effect to say to them and to the world at large, this is what happened. As you see, the problem is solved, and here is your answer. But do not blame me if here and there is found an unknown factor in the equation, an X we do not know what to do with, but without which there would have been no solution. I can show you the X. I have used it, but I cannot explain it. As will be seen, I have taken that portion of my journal extending from June 16, 1922 to September 10th of the same year. Before that period and after it, it is merely the day-by-day -day record of an uneventful life, rather fully detailed, since like Pepe's I have used it as a reservoir into which to pour much of that residue which remains in a man's mind over and above the little he gives out each day. Rather more fully detailed, too, since I keep it in shorthand, an accomplishment acquired in my student days, and used not to ensure the privacy of the diary itself, although I think my dear wife so believes, but to enable me, frankly, to exercise that taste for writing which exists in all of us whose business is English literature. Show me any man who teaches literature, and I will show you a man thwarted. For it is our universal, hidden conviction that we too could write, were it not for the necessity of earning our daily bread. We start in as writers, only temporarily sidetracked. Some day, we say to ourselves, and go to our daily task of Milton or Dryden or Pope, as those who, seeking the beauties of the country, must travel through a business thoroughfare to get there. But time goes by, and still we do not write. We find, as life goes on, that all the great thoughts have already been recorded, that there is not much to say that has not been already said, and because we are always staring at the stars, we learn the shortness of our arms. We find a vicarious consolation in turning out, now and then, a man who is not daunted by tradition, 
and who puts his old wine into new bottles. We read papers before small and critical societies, and we sometimes keep journals. And so this journal. Much the same as when, under stress of violent excitement or in the peaceful interludes, I went to it as one goes to a friend, secure against betrayal. Here and there I have detailed more fully conversations which have seemed to bear on the mystery. Now and again I have rounded a sentence. But in the main it remains as it was, the daily history of that strange series of events which culminated so dramatically on the night of September 10th in the paneled room of the main house at Twin Hollows. Of this house itself, since it figures so largely in the narrative, a few words should be said. The main portion of it, the hall which extended from the terrace toward the sea through to the rear and the drive, the paneled den and the large library in front of it, are very old. To this portion in the seventies had been added across the hall by some long-forgotten builder, the dining room opposite the library and facing the sea, pantries, kitchen, laundry, and beyond the laundry a nondescript room originally built as a gun room and still containing the gun cases on the walls. In later years the gun room, still so called, had fallen from its previous dignity and served diverse purposes. In my Uncle Horace's time old Thomas, the gardener, used it on occasion as a potting room, and on wet days washing was hung up in it to dry, but it remained the gun room, and so figures in this narrative. In the rebuilding considerable judgment had been shown, and the broad white structure, with its colonial columns to the roof, makes a handsome appearance from the bay. It stands on a slight rise, facing the water, and its lawn extends to the edge of the salt marsh which divides it from the sea. This is Twin Hollows, a place restful and beautiful to the eye, a gentleman's home, with its larkspurs and zinnias, its roses and its sundial, its broad terrace, its great sheltered porch and its old panelling. Some lovely woman should sweep down its wide polished staircase, or armed with basket and shears should cut roses in the garden with its sundial, that sundial where I stood the night the bell clanged. But it stands idle. It will, so long as I live, always stand idle. Of my uncle Horace, who also figures largely in the journal, a few words are necessary. He was born in 1848, and graduated from this university with the class of seventy. He had died suddenly in June of the year before the journal takes up the narrative, presumably of cardiac asthma, from which he had long suffered. A gentleman and a scholar, an essential solitary, there had been no real intimacy between us. Once in a while I passed a weekend in the country with him, and until the summer of the narrative, my chief memory of him had been of a rather small and truculent elderly gentleman, with the dry sharp cough of the heart sufferer, pacing the terrace beneath my window at night in the endless search of the asthmatic for air, and smoking for relief some particularly obnoxious brand of herbal cigarette, until the summer of the narrative. Ever since I have been considering the making public of the journal, I have been asking myself this question, as one which will undoubtedly be asked when the book is published. What effect have the events of that summer had on my previous convictions? Have I changed? Do I now believe that death is but a veil, and that through that veil we may now and then, as through a glass, see darkly? I can only answer that as time has gone on, I find they have exerted no permanent effect whatever. I am still profoundly agnostic. My wife and I have emerged from it, I imagine, as one emerges from a seance room where the phenomena have been particularly puzzling, that is, bewildered and half-convinced for the moment, but without any change in our fundamental incredulity. The truth is that if these things be, they are too great for our human comprehension. The revolution demanded in our ideas of the universe is too basic, and, as the journal will show, too dangerous. All houses in which men have lived and suffered and died are haunted houses, I have written somewhere in the journal. And if thoughts are entities, which may impress themselves on their surroundings, perhaps this is true. But dare I go further? Restate my conviction at the time that the solution of our crimes had been facilitated by assistance from some unseen source, and that, having achieved its purpose, this force forthwith departed from us? I do not know. The X remains unsolved. But I admit that, more than once, 
During the recent editing of this journal for publication, I have wakened at night covered with a cold sweat from a dream in which I am once more standing in the den of the house at Twin Hollows, the red lamp lighted behind me, and am looking out into the hall at a dim figure standing at the foot of the staircase. A figure which could not possibly be there, but was there. Signed, William A. Porter. End of section one.